Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Ray Wong, the founder and principal analyst of Constellation Research, a research and advisory firm which studies disruptive business and exponential technology trends. Ray is also an author on digital disruption and hosts a weekly webcast called Disrupt TV. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Ray. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. So how are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, so Ray, you have just released a book called Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And in it, you talk a lot about concepts like data democratization and the emergence of technical giants in, in terms of how people access data and work with data. So why did you choose to write this, this work? And um, what did you basically find in your research? Yeah, we started talking about digital transformation in 2010. And we ended up, I wrote a first book on disrupting digital business in 2015. And what we realized was companies were doing some level of digital. They started looking at channels and they thought they were building business models with digital. And by the time we got to 2015 to 2018, the companies that got it understood that digital businesses were built on data. You were competing for data. Data was the most important important asset of these digital businesses. And then we went and took a step further and said, which companies were doing digital transformation in a way that was successful and which companies were actually exceeding that success. And we determined there was a class of companies called digital giants that were outpacing the market. And we know who they are, right? It's the fangs and what we call meta now and Microsoft, right? <laughs> You've got the companies that, you know, in 2017 had $2 trillion in market cap. And you're like, these are really big companies. And when companies get big, they get slow and bureaucratic and they don't get anything done. And you're just like, this is going to be, you know, a disaster. They're all going to be lethargic and no, not go anywhere. But you know, fast forward to 2021, and even with this, with any market routes that happens along the way, the combined market cap of these companies are now almost ten and a half, maybe eleven trillion. So these companies quintupled in the last four years because they had an advantage in data, and most people don't understand that. And these companies were truly what we call digital giants, and they compete on data, and it's one of the most important facets of their success. So if you kind of take that apart a little bit, we've been talking for years about how data is the new oil and how everybody's going to be competing on data, but they've done something differently than just accumulate data, right? What is it that they've done that's different than other people? And how does that relate to things that we all can be doing in our own respective business worlds? Joe, as you know, just accumulating data doesn't do anything. You've had so many amazing roles where you've used data and you've put that into action. We call this data to decisions. You have to take the data. You organize it to information flows that make sense. And you know them. Those are business processes like order to cash, procure to pay, uh, hire to retire, insight to uh, you know action. And each one of these data flows, then we go out and we mine the patterns and say, hey, look, what's going on? What patterns are here? And then what we figure out from that insight is what actions, what next best actions to take. And that data decisions paradigm is the first thing you would do with data. So if you're out there accumulating data saying, hey, check this out. I'm on my next data X, right? It could be Mart, Warehouse, uh, Lake, um, Lake House. I don't know where people are going with these things. But you know, then you're like, hey, I got all this data. Uh, you're missing the point. The point is you have to actually do something with the data. 
but they, there's a little bit more, right? You know that too. And I'll leave you five things these digital giants are doing. The first thing is they're building massive networks. And we're talking about not like a million users. We're talking like not like 50 million customers. These companies are all above 100 million active users, people that are engaged using the process, products and services and offerings. But there's also something else. They're not only doing that. They're also using what we call disintermediation of the customer account control. They aggregate customers from other customers, from their partners, to build these big networks of users that then interact with things, right? They buy things, they connect, they share, they like, and it's those actions that they use that's part of the data that's so important. And then, of course, when they disintermediate customer account control and aggregate and use that data, they also build a digital monetization model. Um, most people started digital, said, look, uh, I've got a digital channel, um, I've got a digital business model, but then they realized that you got to make money doing this. And it's ads, it's goods, it's services, it's memberships, it's subscriptions, it's search. And every one of those actions a customer takes is what we call a demand signal. It's an indicator mm-hmm. of what's happening. A customer, a product, a serve, you know, a employee, a supplier, they're interacting with a procurement request or a action or a invoice or a service request or an order. And when they do that and you apply context of location or time or where you are in the business process and journey or what's your, what's your temperature outside or what's your heart rate or wait, are you blinking a lot? All those factors build what we call eventually the business graph, which is what's giving these digital giants a competitive advantage. Let's talk a little bit about that business graph because I think in some respects what you've said is, number one is you better know what your end result is. What is the key critical, you know, critical business initiative that you're looking to solve and have laser sharp focus on that and how you're going to monetize that? Check. Now we start thinking about this business graph concept, which is how to make everyone buy into that. So what are the components of the business graph and how do you make sure that the business can understand and buy into this data strategy and how it monetizes value? Well, I'm going to first by saying, don't try to build the business graph and hope for immediate results. You will fail. <laughs> These things take a while to build, right? So, so it's a gradual process. And what you do start out with is you look at your high volume transactions and you say, what data sets do I have that have massive volume that are easy to get that I can build some correlations around? And that's where you start because that's where you get your quick wins. And that's when management gets excited and says, oh my God, this is great. We're getting some correlations. And you're like, no, that's not a correlation, but it's directionally correct. And, and you have those kind of conversations and we geek out in data land, right? But but what we then do is build upon those you know, transactions by adding additional attributes or context, right? You talk a lot about this, Joe, as well. I mean, having the context to the data is helping us be able to get to what we call a concept called precision decisions. Our goal here is to say, you know, it's highly likely that these two items, these five items, these 10 data points are actually creating a directionally correct trend. And let's see what we can do with that trend. And when I say in the digital world, what's so amazing is that every action is a demand signal, it allows you to start doing A, B to X testing on a whole bunch of actions. And in fact, the easiest way to describe this, when we take context, where we take about weather, location, time, business process, all that kind of stuff, we apply it to what we call choose your own adventures, which are these A, B tests. You make a decision and something happens and you make a choice to what we're doing, what we call anticipatory, or you can say, you know, predictive, or we, can, we call them anticipatory analytics, right? What that means is you're going to make a guess and see if someone's going to take that action. And if you start getting signals back 
and building that loop, you get the precision decisions. You eliminate the false positives. You eliminate the false negatives. You get to confidence rates of like 99%. Okay, let's be honest. It's going to be like 90 and you're like, hey, that's better than flipping a you know, coin. But <laughs> It's close enough, and you can keep testing, keep refining, and trying to understand, hey, is this really a trend or wait? We're dealing with pandemic data. This is useless. We're going to have to reset our data models. All those kind of things are going to pop up. Well, something that you said is is interesting, and it might seem obvious, but at the end of the day, having all the data and all the analytics in the world is kind of useless if you don't take meaningful action or drive a certain kind of action from it. Uh, at Click, we call that concept active intelligence, which is data in real time that drives an analytical outcome that drives a decision in real time. And so I think that a lot of times where people fail is actually not on the data collection or not even on the analytics, which on that deployment, how do you actually deploy a decision-making construct that actually can be that can provide that A/B testing and and what are some examples of people who have done it well and what what can we learn from those people that are really kind of putting that decision into the hands of employees or customers or business partners in that real time way? You know, active intelligence is something that's really important and, and that's really taking that insight to action that we talk a lot about and getting data decisions in place. I'll give you a kind of fun example. And this is a company that was doing customer experience in large buildings in a commercial setting. Um, so, so here's kind of how it works. It's 2 p.m. You're in the middle of a skyscraper anywhere in the world. You get into the lobby, 27 point facial analysis, a gate analysis, looking at my walking habit says, hey, that looks like the guy on the 13th floor. Oh, okay, great. Right. And so what's the next action? Uh, well, I've been standing in the lobby. I'm walking towards elevators. Send an elevator down so I don't have to wait. But that's just part one. I mean, that's, that's true. Okay, they should do that. I swipe my badge. It says, oh, yeah, it's the guy on the 13th floor. Uh, let's definitely send the elevator down towards him. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, good. Got into the elevator. Um, it says, Hey, you know, you've been wanting to meet with your boss for the last, you know, three days. There's a you know, 15 minute window available um, right now. Um, you can get onto the 50th floor and meet up with her. Would you like to do that? And I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. So option one, go to the 13th floor, has a 90% probability to do it. Someone made option two, which is my A-B test. And it said, hey, you want to go meet with your boss? Oh, well, hey, you know, it's a 78% chance I might even click on that option. And option three pops up and says, hey, Ray, there are free donuts on the fifth floor. <laughs> Let's see what I choose. <laughs> right? And how my choice will dictate my future actions. You know, I'm just kidding. But you get the idea, right? What we're doing now is, is creating what we call these ambient customer experiences. These ambient experiences are happening in the background. They're testing us. And everything we do, you know, every choice we make gets and fed back, right? It gets fed back. And you're like, oh, you know, he actually took the donuts to meet with the boss. Smart move. Or he <laughs> sat and got to the donuts and didn't meet with the boss. Boo, you failed the marshmallow test, right? So all these kind of fun things pop up. Well, something that you just said, and this is something that you and I were talking about in preparing for the podcast, what you just described is a blending of the physical and digital world that requires advancements in AI. So for the most part, I think people are familiar with kind of an Amazon type of scenario. There's a, I have a digital persona. I leave breadcrumbs of what I click on. And as a result, my digital persona has certain kind of A-B tests that are easy to see. What you're describing is actually a blending of that with an actual recognition of where somebody is in the physical world, what they're doing, what they're walking like. So what's happening in the in the world that's actually advancing those kinds of scenarios? And, and are they real? Are they real yet? Are they coming? Oh, no, this one's real. And and if you look at how casinos handle security, um, they're also very real, right? I mean, we're taking everything from 
data warehouse automation to data integration to streaming to data lakes to catalogs to hybrid data delivery because we're getting weather feeds and other other things that are like loyalty information to all this stuff and, and you're basically building the things that you need to um, deliver on a customer experience and it's, it's a business focused goal the technology is there it's important it's fundamental uh, but we're focused on improving experiences right and so when you take something like that we're focused on improving compliance we're focused on improving uh, risk mitigation we're focused on improving employee experience and helping employees become more product we're focused on democratizing data making sure that every store clerk has the information insight they need to serve their customers or how to avoid the angry customer that doesn't pay we can just make them wait you know all those kind of things yeah and i think one of the things that you pointed out uh in something that i heard you say was that the vision AI is actually making this a reality that we have this kind of idea that wouldn't it be great if we could do text recognition or optical character scans and things. But you're, you're saying that the advancement in terms of how cameras can actually register what's happening in real time and convert that to intent and to signal is actually the, the part that's really stitching some of the stuff together. Um, when did that start to happen? You know, this is the funky thing, right? The computer vision is so much better than NLP. And so, so I asked my son, who's like a CS major, and I say, hey, like, why is this so much easier? And, you know, he's like, oh, well, of course, right? It's easier to look at pixel, um, you know, looks at pixels and patterns on pixels than deal with constructs of language. And I was like, oh, I never thought about this. And this is why, you know, you see those awesome things where, you know, is that a chihuahua or is that a blueberry muffin, right? Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, that's probably, you know, a hard problem. But security cameras are able to tell, hey, these folks are loitering here too long or these folks are counting cards or these folks over here are on break, but they're really not really on break. They shouldn't have been on break. Or we can even do contact tracing based on security cameras, I mean, that's how good it is, right? And and that's amazing. And that means, you know, you can, you know, you can judge how fans are feeling in the stands. Like, hey, it's too hot out there. Very chill, chill, chill the stadium, right? Or, hey, it's time to actually crank up the heat and sell more beers. I mean, I don't know. You can go either way. You know? so, so you see lots of this happening. And it's amazing, right? I mean, I don't know if they're running active intelligence platforms. But, you know, if they are, I mean, it, that's, that's the whole concept and spirit of having active intelligence. Right. The temperature. People seem to be wiggly. Turn up the temperature by two degrees in the stadium yeah we're um, <laughs> getting more beers i get more beers exactly but don't do it but do it in section 203 <laughs> not over here because you know the lines in 203 are actually shorter exactly <laughs> um so one of the things that this starts to call out is you're starting to envision a world in which you're collecting a lot more data than just kind of the simple transactional volume and you're starting to make decisions that start to um have the potential to move from useful to creepy if you will, um, what are people doing to make sure that the ethics uh, are are dealt with in these contexts, and how organizationally are organizations set up to understand what are what are when do you cross that round that line from useful to creepy, and is what we're doing um, normal, acceptable, what the customer wants? What's the feedback loop for that, and how are customers dealing with that? Um, I don't believe privacy is dead. I think that's really up to us. So let's start there. But 
but we should have ethical AI principles. And you've talked about this as well. And so, you know, we start with the fact that algos should be transparent. You should understand how they're done. People should be able to see them. It shouldn't be a black box, right? Then we, we take it a step further. We say not only they should be transparent, they should also be reversible um, when they're not correct, right? And when they're doing something that's wrong. Um, but before you do that, I mean, you want to make sure that people understand where the bias is. Bias isn't bad. That's how you make decisions, right? But unwanted bias is one of the things that you worry about, right? So you want to make sure that you, you understand what that, you know, what that bias is. You understand you can reverse those decisions. And more importantly, you want to insert humans in the process, right? So if you don't begin the process with a human and end the process with a human, we end up with Skynet. And then, of course, we want to make sure that we can train these algorithms over time and, and really reshape them, you know, and bring in more data sets, understand what's going on. And, and that's really, I mean, those are immutable laws of having digital ethics or AI ethics as well. Um, that way people understand what's happening. The problem is, like all ethics, people apply them differently. And keep in mind, right, at, with any technology, it's really the individual or the organizations behind them that make a technology good or bad. And, and, and that's why, you know, we really should be espousing more about these AI ethics, helping ingrain that into how people should operate. And then when people don't, you know, follow some of those ethics, we have to determine is that cultural or is that not cultural? Um, one of the things that you talk a lot about is that um, we have to start thinking a little bit more liberally about the data that we're using, and that will often rely on third-party sources. Um, how do you, how does one think about third-party sources that are adjacent to them? Is Are you seeing kind of a market that is uh, surging with respect to people that are market generators of data? They're trying to monetize data, certain products. And uh, what's the ecosystem look like for that kind of collaboration within an industry? All right. Those are three important points. One is, is the data that someone else has is useful to you. Two, are people monetizing that? And three, are people collaborating? So on the first point, yes, right? There's amazing sets of data. Like payment on order flow data is like hilarious when you're looking at trading. And payment on order flow data is like, you know, you basically are indicating what is a hot trade early to the companies that are selling before they sell so they can set a price, right? That's completely hilarious, but it does happen all the time. And so when you experience payment on order, flow, it's basically people are gaming the system on when to sell or buy a stock and you're stuck in the middle because you're not in the broker because they have better information and insight than you do. So you might lose a dollar on a trade. You might lose $5 on a trade. You just don't know, right? But that's definitely happening. But it's an example that data is available. Two, people are monetizing data. And three, it's not really collaboration because you're, you're outside of that game. However, if we look at weather data, that's a great one, right? You buy weather data, you know, there are companies that provide the weather data and you know, they share that information with you. They share that information to public sources, and it might even allow you to shut down your manufacturing plant two hours before tornado hits or prepare ahead, right? And that's a great example where everyone wins, right? It's data that's being sold, it's data that's being monetized, and it's data that's being collaborative, right? So those are two examples of that. Um, uh, there are other great examples of that that are outside weather. It could be information and insights, like people build a collective. That collective information would allow you to figure out pricing and demand so that people can actually smooth out the demand curves. They can actually maximize on dynamic pricing. I mean, sometimes, you know, I look at TSA traffic data. You know, I look at how many people cross through the turnstiles at TSA, and that'll give me a great indicator as to what's going to happen in the, you know, post-pandemic travel, you know, s scenarios. And I can understand how business travels 
travels doing versus you know you know leisure travel. So all those things are like great information insights, and they don't sit inside your four walls. They're not clean. You got to grok the data. You got to you know clean it. You got to master it. You got to put it in you know a way that actually you can use it. And and we see that all across the board. And this is actually something, Ray, that you've done a little bit of research on, which is the regulation of these tech giants. And in a world in which they are operating clearly, you know, in a way to make profit, to hoard data, there's some things that um, I think that the the government institutions are trying to figure out around how to manage what was not a problem five, ten years ago. What are you seeing with respect to regulation uh, around data, around the tech giants? And what do you see coming in the next 12 to 24 months? So let's start here. I'm a free market capitalist, and I believe in minimal regulation. But in a case like this, what we really have to do is look at a couple things. The first one is cost-benefit analysis. And you have to say, look, you know, there are free maps that you got, the ability to actually do translation, the ability to buy things on the Internet for so cheap, the efficiencies in supply chain to consumer understanding to improving customer experience. I mean, those are awesome. And that's because you're giving up your data. Right. And that's the value exchange that's going on. And there's a massive amount of societal benefits. But when we get to a point where companies are being purchased to shut them down, so a competitive offering isn't being put out there, you know, when products and services are being limited, when prices go up, you know, when customer choices are squashed. Yeah, then we have to actually do something about regulation. But in the meantime, it doesn't mean we don't plan for that. In the meantime, it doesn't mean we put, don't put out regulations that ensure free and fair markets. Because you can't have free market capitalism unless you have free and fair markets. But you want to have as unfettered regulation as you ha- can. Um, but when the rules aren't clear, the government's job is to set clear rules. right? And so that's really the spectrum of thought. So the first one that's important is the notion of having your personal data as a property right. Now, you're probably wondering, like, well, isn't it a right already? And the answer is not really, right? Today, we have, you know, land titles for our home and property, right? We have, you know, titles for our car as property, for our vehicles and boats and all that kind of fun stuff. We have, you know... Uh, intellectual property rights for ideas, trademarks, right? Your, you know, are um, your patents. Those are property rights. But the most important piece, and you said this earlier, Joe, right? Data is the new oil. You guys do a lot of that, right? Well, data is the product. Your personal data, in fact. And because it's your personal data, well, it should be a property right too. The existing legislation for property rights exists. All you have to do is make your personal data, your genomics and DNA, your digital exhaust, property rights, and everyone around the world can enforce them right away. No need for new laws, no need for new lobbying, no need for specific types of regulation in place. They already exist. So start there. um, And that means I need your consent and I may pay you for consent. And so consent and value chain become important and you might end up getting payment. Um, So you've given us a lot to think about in terms of what's coming next in 2022. What other things can you see in terms of the data and analytics space that are coming around the corner uh, that make some of the things that you're talking about possible in a world where they don't feel quite possible with the technology that we've currently got. Yeah, what's adjacent is really our ability to get better customer understanding 
um, better employee understanding, um, having more control of the data that we're sharing with um, companies and organizations, uh, even your employers, right? We're getting better information and insights. And, you know, on one hand, we can use that for good and prevent things from occurring. On the other hand, we can take that uh, and use it for bad. And I think we're going to see both legislation and regulation that actually keeps bad actors from, you know, abusing that data. Uh, and we're also going to see more uses of, you know, putting data to good. Now, when we think about AI and data and, and the outcomes of business data, we have seven spectrums. We usually start by saying, hey, tell me what's going on, right? Just make me aware, right? And, and that's great. You, you get some awareness. You see what's happening. And then we're like, oh, that's overwhelming. Too much information. Too much insight. You know, tell me the things I only need to know. And so we have alerts and workflows and things pop up. And then we're like, wait, you've been looking at this for so long. Start making recommendations. Like, why just give me raw data? And so, so that process is what's been going on over the last 10 years. We're going to amp it up. We're going to get the automation of recommendations, and that's what we should be looking for. We're going to get to the ability to actually predict things, and we're going to get to the ability to actually even prevent issues from happening. I'll give you a great example. Large phone manufacturer back in the day had 80 phones caught on fire. You can take these onto the planes. $8 billion recall over eight weeks, right? With eight sigma in quality, right? This is, let's not even forget this. Like, it's just like 80 phones are catching fire, causing a $8 billion recall. If we could use prevention with our data and actually drill it all the way down to go from eight weeks to one week recall, that would have been a billion dollar recall. If we could have gone from one week to one day, that would have been a $100 million recall. And that's where we're going to see the power and the business outcomes of AI come into place where we can actually prevent a disaster from happening. We can reduce the mitigate risks where they're possible. So credit card fraud, we can catch that before it happens, right? We can actually prevent counterparty issues right before that happens. We can actually mitigate a natural disaster and the impact of that by giving early warning and access, right? There's all these amazing opportunities we can actually switch colors and production requirements and features right in real time on digital goods to say, hey, nobody wanted that. You could see in the first 50 million downloads, nobody wanted that. Let's offer them something else. That's where we're headed. Yeah, and I think that you've kind of said, if I paraphrase, that the winners and losers, losers of the digital economy are really going to be outlined by decision velocity. Right, they, you need to be able to make those decisions in the context now, as opposed to, boy, that was interesting. Wish I had known that an hour ago. <laughs> decision velocity is super cool. I mean, let's think about it. Like you and I make a decision per second, and then what happens in committee? <laughs> it takes a quarter. <laughs> One decision right? per year. It's a decision maybe per year. Machines are making hundreds and thousands of decisions per second, right? That's the asymmetry we're competing against, right? And and we, we will lose every time. So the companies that are making quicker, faster, more accurate decisions, well, those are the ones that are going to win. And you're going to see that as a competitive advantage. Uh, the other thing we when we think about this is that, you know, our ability to actually get to precision is important, right? You know, think about it, like 95% accuracy in manufacturing, you might like Take that and say, that's pretty good. Joe, would you take 95% accuracy in healthcare? No, I would not. But your doctor's only 87%. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's right? human, expect... it's okay. But if it's a machine, it's not okay. You see how I messed know, up our I thinking know. is on this topic? I know. Look at our biases. No, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> we have a lot of higher expectation of machines um, being much more precise. And, and that's where we're going to see this. And actually, the, you know, you asked me other, your earlier question. I think this is going to be even important. There's four questions every organization is going to be asking themselves about, um, about every business process they have. The first one is, when do we intelligently automate full automation when do we augment the machine with the human and that's where the precision decisions come into play and we want to reduce false positives false negatives and you know understand why people make you know you know exceptions why do they break the rules why they don't follow the protocol and then we want to augment the humans with machines so that we can actually give them information democratize data make faster decisions and when were you going to trust human judgment when do you want the human touch so, so I think those are the four big questions everyone's going to be asking in 2022. That's fantastic. And as we wrap up this conversation, I wonder if you could give us some thoughts on some, what are some big things that you think are changing fundamentally in the world or in business with respect to how data is being democratized in the marketplace? Great example. 19 months ago, we didn't start the day with data. We didn't begin, you know, looking at our reports. We didn't have all that information and insight. And we didn't continue throughout the day looking at the data and insights, right? In fact, we probably sat in a meeting and reviewed data from a month ago once a month, right? And we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Our numbers are up or our numbers are down or we've reduced this. And we were flying in the blind. The good news is we do that now, right? Post-pandemic, everybody or in this pandemic, everybody has more information and insights than before. The bad news is the data you've collected religiously for the last 18 months sucks. It'll never be used again. <laughs> it is so off. Like, there's never going to be a pattern for this again. So go back and find the data you had pre-2019, like pre-February 1st, 2019, and start using that and figure out how you can normalize the data between that and what we're seeing in the pandemic and see what's different. Understanding what's different is more important than understanding the previous patterns because that's going to help you build the next set of models. So start there. Whatever you do, start there. All right. Now, the second thing is now that we've got the permission from management to actually build these capabilities, don't squander it. Right. Your projects still have to be actionable. So layer your projects so that they can be used. So something foundational now can be used three or four steps later and get that budgeted while the budgets are still hot and allowing you to do that. And focus this time instead of on risk mitigation, focus on growth. Right. You've got risk mm. mitigation down. You've got operational efficiency down. Now focus on revenue growth. What product lines need to be expanded? You did that. You did that before. You said, look, hey, 80% of our revenues and profits are coming from 20% of our products and offerings. Okay. Where are the next growth ones? Let's go deep. Let's figure that out and let's go win. Right. Um, and more importantly, you can start figuring out how to do, make optimization revenue growth, and you can start figuring how to make you know safety and security and compliance, you know risk mitigation, and turn that into revenue growth. So you put in the you put in the foundational capabilities. Now go out and grow. Fantastic. So Ray, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, you can check out our website at constellationr.com. That's all the research Constellation has. I have a personal website at raywang, R-A-Y-W-A-N-G.org. And of course, you can follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, Twitter gets a little heated, but I do reply to everyone's tweets. So, <laughs> <Some fun. laughs> Like it or not. <laughs> like it or not. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Ray. It's been a real pleasure. Joe, thanks for having me. And next time, I get to interview you. Yeah, fantastic. It's a date. Ray Wong is the founder and principal analyst of Constellation Research. He's also an author on digital disruption and hosts a weekly podcast called Disrupt TV. 
Data is still at the center of the new digital economy, and tech giants are showing us the path on how to exploit it. Ray Wong reminds us that data is useful only within the context of real business questions with real consequential decisions being made in the right context. And right now, with the lines being blurred between the physical and digital world, winners and losers will be decided on decision velocity. In other words, those with an active intelligence analytics strategy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit click.com, Q-L-I-K.com.